Hello and welcome to Lockdown Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Magdahl. Remind you, you can follow us on Twitter at LockdownWBB. You can follow our 24-7 coverage of women's basketball, both at the Nine and at High Post Hoops. Make sure that you're supporting the writers who are doing the work every single day. And somebody who helps make us do that in a clear and concise and important way is somebody who buys in, who understands it, and that's the commissioner of the WNBA, Kathy Andelbert, who joins us from her quarantined home. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Howard. How are you? I'm still in the uh, WNBA draft room from my house. I'm still working. <laughs> I am in the, the very room in my house. I covered the WNBA draft, so what a lovely coincidence. So let's talk, if we can, big picture about this moment. I just want to set the stage very briefly, if I can. When the UConn women's basketball team was having its undefeated season during Rebecca Lobo's senior year in 1994-95, ultimately capturing the attention of the media, a big reason that many of the veterans of that time will tell you it happened is because the NHL went on strike and suddenly the Hartford Whalers weren't playing. And that created an opening for coverage. And People like us who live in this space are obviously frustrated that it should take other actions for this to happen. But I I do wonder, while no one, no one would want the current circumstances to be what they are, when you think about the potential for reopening when it is safe, do you think about the potential impact, the potential shakeup opportunity here for the WNBA and really for women's sports as a whole? Yeah, absolutely, Howard. And and first, thank you for your interest in your coverage. It's really important that we keep the conversation on women's sports and WNBA and women's basketball, you know, uh, at, at the at the front um, because we had so much momentum coming into this season, which mm-hmm. would have been our 24th season. We would have tipped off on May 15th. So now we do find ourselves in um, a, a moment of uh, challenge for the country, for the world. But we also are looking at the different kinds of opportunities. Uh, that this could present to elevate more people watching. You saw what happened with our WNBA draft, which was on that Friday night, April 17th, on ESPN, mm-hmm. second most watched draft in the history of the WNBA. You know, some a great draft class, some, you know, once in a, in a you know, generational type player. So I, I think it's really important that we not just look at all the challenge, and believe me, I recognize all the challenge, but look at the opportunity because in my kind of prior experience as we've thought about you know, what you do in the middle of a crisis is what serves you well after. So we need to keep going. We need the conversation. We need to have our players visible. And that's all the things we've been working on while also, you know, obviously getting ready to tip our season at some point. It strikes me that the relationship you had built with the Players Association, with Terry Jackson and with people like Necro, Dwell McKay, you've just built it, you know, having gone through this agreement a few months ago. And certainly we've seen in some other sports that there's been acrimony that has even spilled out into the public sphere. And there's been none of that between the WNBA and the Players Association. How valuable was it to have just gone through a gauntlet of a collective bargaining agreement when a challenge like this comes up? Yeah, like I said, any weaknesses coming into a crisis tend to get amplified Mm -hmm. during a crisis. And so we have strength coming into this crisis. And I think that the 
the foundation that the collective bargaining agreement and getting that done only in January. I know it seems now like it was a long time ago, but just this year in 2020 in January and the strength that that gives us around the platforms and profiles of our players and the, the ability to market them and the ability to, you know, again, like really uh, amplify their level of play on the court. And, and again, we're, you know, excited to tip the season this summer. And um, I think that foundation, you know, really hopefully will, you know, strengthen us as we go through this challenging time. What has the MO been like in terms of your conversation back and forth to negotiate this, to figure out what is logical, whether it comes down to roster size, whether it comes down to cut down days, all of those things, obviously, uh, right up to and including players getting paid or things you have to figure out in conjunction with the Players Association along the way. Is that, was that a series of daily conversations? How do you go about coming up with that? And And I ask that by way of The CBA had these sort of built-in dates and these clear goals on each side. This this is obviously largely undefined. Yeah, and I think for all the whole sports world, we're all looking at you know now how everything is shifting. Everything has to change, and so and and how important communication is. And so right when this was occurring back in March, you know, I think almost every day since then, every business day, you know, the the PA and I have been on the phone Mm -hmm. talking about a variety of different things, first leading up to draft, now leading up to not having training camp, postponing the tip of the season, and now shifting to something we all want to do is is to what the season structure is going to look like and when we'll be able to tip ball safely with, you know, obviously the medical uh, safety and protocols in place. So I think some of that's starting to settle now, but it's still constant communication, Howard, as you said. And, you know, un- whether we like it or not, conventional thinking and conventional wisdom mm-hmm. is no longer, you know, if I- I've been telling my team if something, you know, is conventional and how we did it last year, we probably really need to look at it because it's probably not right. Yeah. And I think business leaders in just sports and like in, in corporations all have to be looking at things that same way because, you know, whether it's the roster cut down, you know, whether it's a, a variety of other issues we're thinking about if we end up in the multiple different scenarios that we're looking at a single site, neutral site, and multiple sites, back in arenas without fans, all of that, we just have to think differently. How are we going to engage a fan at home? How are we going to get more eyes on broadcast, you know, during this period of time when people are craving live sports to be back on? It's without question an advantage to my mind that to have your leadership and to have a leadership that is thinking differently and already was thinking differently. If you think about, in retrospect, it'll seem tame, uh, the changes from last year to this year <laughs> that we're agreeing to, but we're significant. We're, we're in some fundamental ways shifting the paradigm, not just of how the league operates year to year, but how players operate within the context of the league within their careers. And those were enormous. So you were already going down that path, I think, to begin with. But do you think that made those conversations easier with the players that you guys had already built up, not just an element of trust, but an element of uh, looking to bring about change in this space? Yeah, as you know, we had set off on a multidimensional transformation last year, um, you know, and and we, we had a, have a plan around focused on our three pillars, which is a player first league 
you know, new revenue models and, you know, driving team and owner success and fan engagement. And, and so, you know, when you're in a crisis, again, you have to stick with those three pillars. You have to think differently. You know, will our transformation be as quick as I want? You know, I'll be a little impatient here on the transfer. Some of the elements of the transformation are going to have to wait because now we got to put a season on and a very unconventional season, sure. you know, probably in a single site, probably without fans. You know, again, those all scenarios are still on the table. But if you think about how everything's looking for um, sports and getting live sports back up and running without a significant antiviral or a vaccine, you know, we're going to have to really focus on how to do the best around the player experience, the owner success, and the economic model, and then fan engagement. So I do think for all sports, this is going to give us a great opportunity on that third pillar I mentioned around fan engagement. You know, because we already, you know, we're seeking to get more fans in our seats, but also to get more fans to watch on broadcast. So could we be innovative, Howard, around mm-hmm. this now? We already we already had a plan around that, but now that has to be accelerated. And maybe some other things we don't get done in the transformation. But, you know, when we get into our 25th season next year, we're already thinking and planning. We haven't taken that off the table, how to, how to plan around what I'll call our silver 25th anniversary. So, you know, again, nothing is easy here. The choices aren't great during this crisis and this pandemic, but, you know, we're going to make sure that WNBA is one of those that comes out when we look back and say, I'm glad we kept investing and we kept making these decisions in the middle of the crisis. And I guess to that end, when you think of the WNBA relative to, excuse me, other teams, other leagues, I should say, and what they're doing, it seems like there's a rough divide among professional leagues between let's say the quarantine model, you know, where everyone is going to a particular place and the model in home stadiums where you eliminate the issue of travel, but obviously you are now at the mercy of multiple potential second waves and, you know, lots of other things that could be individualized to particular geographical regions. I just wonder, big picture, how you're thinking about that. Obviously, there's been significant reporting about how the NBA is thinking in terms of a single place. Is that something that if it works for the NBA, it would presumably work to scale for the WNBA just by virtue of the fact that we're talking about 12 teams of 11 or 12 players rather than 30 teams, 15 players apiece? Yeah, and I think we do, for the WNBA, we're doing our own planning. We're leveraging off the great teamwork that the NBA always provides to us, you know, but we're we're working on our own plan because our size and scale is quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, our players who play overseas are used to being a little more in, you know, in, in foreign countries that aren't their home market. So obviously we're going to do something here in the U.S., but I just analogize it because we're just different. We weren't 75% of the way through our season. We had tipped yet, so lot of differences between us and the other major men's professionals. But Um, presumably a different location at the end of the day, simply because in that in that way, having the NBA where the WNBA is and vice versa isn't necessarily to the advantage of either lead because of the amount of people, right? Yeah, that's correct. And I mean, if you're a fan of what happened post 9-11, where companies, you know, kind of decentralized their operations and didn't put everybody in one building and they they scattered them across the river and in New York, like same type of thing, like would you want everybody there? Because if there's, and and there's no doubt there's going to be some level, I mean, medical experts say there'll be some level of a second wave, but we're more prepared for it this time from a testing of PPE. We know the high risk 
categories are better and how to treat them. You've got this from severe from Gilead. You, you have a lot of different things. Um, so I think the flu, fluidity of those type of things has worked in our favor for all sports leagues, I think. But, you know, we still need to make sure that um, some of the gating issues around what happens if a player tests positive, you know, can you give them a better environment than they have now that, you know, 30 states have opened up in phases and, you know, some point, Howard, our state here in New Jersey and New York will open up their economies as well. Um, and so, sure you know, so. really just kind of monitoring the evolving information. And I know that's what the NBA is doing. That's what we're doing at the WNBA. And everybody does have a little different perspective on exactly how to do this. But I think the playbooks are starting to settle a little bit on how we're going to get live sports back up this summer. And you see some sports like golf and, and things like that that have already gone out there with that. But we want to make sure, again, that the medical safety protocols are second to none, that we're not jeopardizing you know, um, the medical safety at all of our players, fans, if we were to have fans, but certainly players, staff, coaches, et cetera. So that's our number one focus. And there are different, you know, obviously experts that you talk to both on. It's not just, you know, physicians and infectious disease. It's also public health officials mm -hmm. because you want to make sure that you have relationships on the public health side of this too. And that's going to be important in this. But it's all got to be contingency planning, right? I mean, I, I know you're big on that anyway, but just the fact that when you're planning for a hypothetical opening date down the line, there's just that lag time you can't account for, right? Any other way? Yeah, there, you definitely have to account for. One, we had not have a training camp that so we've got to account for. We want the best level of play when we do tip off. So right. you have to have the right protocols, the right quarantining, the right testing, and, and then obviously the right amount of training first, probably starting with individual training and team training, then, you know, then the tip of the regular season into playoffs. So, I mean, I, I feel good that we have a good plan around all this. And, and I, as, as you just said, you don't even have to set a date. You're looking at all the data and then the date will come based on the data that's, that's emerging, you know, nationwide. And then obviously we're working on plans with you know, on where we would where, where we would play, whether it would be in our 12 arenas or not. You know, could you cut the travel exposure and risk that come from travel by doing it in a single site or multiple sites? So those are all on the table, and we're starting to hone in on probably five or six of those scenarios um, because you could have permutations off of those that give you 20 scenarios. Sure. But like you said, contingency planning is key, but we're not going to do anything without thinking that we have the confidence that, you know, our, for our players and our staff that, you know, we have the right medical health and safety protocols as, again, advised by medical experts as well as public health experts. And then would you say, would you express confidence that you have it narrowed down to a handful of sites? Do you feel like there's a site A and a site B in your mind? I'm just curious how, how close you are to coming to that best conclusion with obviously the understanding that these things can and often do change day to day right now. Yeah, we are looking day-to-day -day at data. Um, we're looking, I'd say, a little more than a handful of cities, um, mm -hmm. locations. Um, but, you know, every week we get more information and, and we learn more about, again, the thing that has changed the most over time is the and is a gating issue for us is the availability of testing and PPE right. um, and, and, and the appropriateness of us using that for sport. So that's kind of number one on our list. And that's changing. And obviously states are opening up their economies and 
you know, the numbers are going down, the, the curve is being bent, but that still doesn't mean that we'll, we'll meet that gating issue anytime soon. So, wow. um, but, you know, we've been talking to the players about, you know, when we're ready to go, we need to be ready to go. And that's, that's the reason for communicating with them often um, to make sure that they know we're, we, from a lead perspective, are doing everything we can to protect them, but also they all want to get out, back out and play basketball. And we want it to be high-quality basketball. So we're not going to, going to do anything not to ensure that we are the best uh, product on the court, which is you know where we left it last October. All, all makes sense to me. And again, I have a hoop in the driveway, so you know depending on what <laughs> so you do end I. Up I, I play every night, every night to, <laughs> at six p.m. with my son out there. Well, so it's well, going to so be we, a fun part of this hiatus. We just we just solved it. A couple of driveways in New Jersey, and you've got <laughs> you've got it all taken care of. So for for you personally, I'm just wondering. You took this job now a little under a year ago. It has not yeah. been a normal first year. How how different is your day-to-day, and what is your day-to-day like right now as you're operating in a space that I'm sure you did not anticipate, I don't think anybody anticipated? Yeah, certainly didn't anticipate a global pandemic, um, <laughs> you know, that would probably change live sports forever. Um, but again... Um, I think kind of maybe because of my training in my prior life, having gone through economic downturns and crises and, you know, one of the things like I, I, I do well is like it's a crisis. We've got to continue. We've got to make decisions. We've got to get through this. Um, you know, the, the good news is from where I came, there was a lot of virtual and remoteness because, you know, where I came from, a big consulting and accounting firm where no one lived where they work or work where they live. Mm-hmm. So this isn't as abnormal for me to be not in the same place. Now, I was enjoying at the WNBA that, you know, we were all together in the office and we sure. travel out to teams. I spend time with teams and I miss that. And I, I think, you know, there are certain parts of building relationships that I'm uh, and continuing relationships that I started to build in my first, you know, eight months before this struck. Uh, but, you know, certainly there's a lot we're learning that we can get done uh, remotely and virtually and using, you know, these different um, platforms that now you can see people and, you know, you can actually do social things. We did a social thing with my team last night, which was really fun. Um, I'm definitely culturally a little behind the rest of my team who are, are very culturally literate compared to me. And I learned those kind of things. But, yeah, so you have to find the ways to engage your, your team, to make them productive, to make them feel that this is the vision and, and this is still worth all the hard work. And I never thought I'd say this, but I missed my commute to New York because mm-hmm. that was a moment, maybe, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half each way a day where I used to complain about it all the time. But now I'm like, I kind of miss it because that was a time to clear my head and rethink certain things so that I could get going, you know, the next day on the way home or that morning on the way in. You know, but you, you adapt, and adaptability is really probably agility and adaptability are the two big things that every leader needs during this time because, as I said, conventional thinking out the window, and now it's time to adapt and be agile. You know, it's it's crazy, but we're both going to be excited the first time we're stuck in traffic on the George Washington Bridge, which I agree. I never, <laughs> never... I, I, I've thought of that. I have thought about why, you know, what it's like. And, you know, I visit my mom sometimes down in the southern New Jersey, Philadelphia area, sure. and I'm like, there's no traffic. I just got here with no problem. But, um, but yeah, again, adapting to the new world we have. So, it's amazing. Uh, but, you know, we're really, you know, I, I can't express, you know, 
the gratefulness of keeping the conversation going around WNBA players, the draft, Sabrina and Ruthie and the Oregon Three, but, um, you know, Sato as well, and, and just our veterans and how strong they've been. And, you know, we're trying to make sure visibility, and, and obviously you're really helpful in this power to visibility of our players, whether it's having them in the horse competition or the 2K League, you know, tournament or, you know, in public service announcements or on Ernie Johnson's show mm-hmm. or, you know, you know, Candace is still very active as is Janae. And, and it's just trying to, Elena Deladon's doing some creative things, Sue Bird's doing some creative things. So, you know, that's what this is all about is, is making sure that, you know, we keep our players and the kind of marketing angle going during this very difficult time. There's not an erasure in a way that we've seen in past years. Uh, for women to need to do something extraordinary, out of the ordinary, in the public space in order to be covered, whereas there is an assumption of coverage uh, on the men's sports side. And it seems like, at the very least, those levels of what constitutes getting covered appears to be changing. Uh, You know, the amount and the total seems to vary in a way that is still at odds with what would be a logical and reasonable uh, comparison between men's and women's sports, but there and that way, at least, it seems that that is changing. Certainly, I'm eager to continue to do uh, any work on that front. But before I let you go, just from a quarantine exclusive perspective, uh, a couple of quick questions on it. One is, uh, Ali Quidley shared with our audience a couple weeks ago, she makes a salsa with chicken that is of particular note. Um, I can share that I've been making uh, two things. I've been eating Built Bars, by the way, and I've been eating Mason Jar ice cream. I can tell you that the Built Bar ended <laughs> up being better for my workout than the Mason Jar ice cream. Uh, but I'm wondering how you're sort of on the go handling uh, staying in more uh, from a food perspective and also from a sports perspective. I've been consuming a lot of old WNBA games on the past, which has been widely available, and I've been watching a lot of Korean baseball organizations. So what about for you on those two fronts? Yeah, I'd say on the food side, um, my daughter has moved back home during this time. She, she's 22, which just graduated last year. So she bought an air fryer. So we've been making things like sweet potato fries. And, you know, that is definitely my favorite, sweet potato Lots. fries and, and a variety of other things. And she's doing the mason jar thing, too. So look, look, Howard, you have something in common with the 22-year-old. She, <laughs> she's making her own version of it a protein oat pancake and I told her you know she should trademark it and and start to sell it in her little mason jars Um, (laughs) and you know on the sports side obviously we all miss live sports and I I think it's it's amazing how sports gives so much hope to so many people and I miss it terribly uh, all sports and um, you know thank you uh, for watching the WNBA games for showing on League Pass and I think some of our teams are doing kind of virtual fan things and and um, I'm listening to podcasts, um, lots of podcasts, because I, you know, my only opportunity to get outside, you know, during the day is like in these small moments of recovery. I call them s'mores, where I get out and walk a little bit, and I listen to podcasts about whether it's coronavirus or how people handle things in a crisis or sports podcasts. I listen to them all, so that's been a, a big, uh, a big thing for me during this time. I would be remiss not to point out, by the way, and this is not sponsored content. This is purely my own experience. The WNBA sponsored masks, very comfortable, very effective when I yes. use them oh, for, for the walkout. When I go, we do occasional curbside 
curbside pickup and I call to let them know I'm the one in the WNBA mask. Uh, highly <laughs> I recommend love it. It's, it's been very effective. Uh, yeah. yeah, go to WNBAstore.com and I ordered a bunch of mine. And, you know, I have eight brothers and sisters and 29 nieces and nephews. So I ordered a lot because I'm giving them all out to them if I see some of them this weekend, uh, some family members. Uh, socially distanced, of course, will of be course. together this weekend. So, but yeah, masks are just going to be part of our society for the foreseeable future. And That's true. So it was important for us to get those masks to the market. I know it took a while probably for you to get your shipment, but to get them to market and also all proceeds go to Feed America. So to do a charitable component of that as well. It, it was it was the right product at the right time and, and took about a week and a half. It was, it was nice. It, it arrived right away. So no complaints Excellent. on this front. Excellent. So, well, <laughs> That's well, great. I will let you get back to what uh, is an enormous task of planning, but Kathy Andelbert, thank you so much for taking the time to take us through everything that's been going on. Thank you, Howard. Stay safe, and thanks again for all your support.